I think they're right. And I'd, I'd read them, and I knew that a friend of mine, Doug Wilson, was very into these guys and very convinced of them. And I began wondering if, if perhaps God had given his church the power of the keys, as the Roman Catholic Church says it, to, to, to claim people and to put people out, that this power resides within the church. At some point, I thought the church has to have some power because it's so powerless in the world. And so I thought, maybe we need to just claim the power of the keys and recognize that the church has to speak and act. And what these men, N.T. Wright, Dunn, the um, Sanders, the new perspective on Paul, what they were introducing was something that said that the Jews were not as, as Luther described them and, and that their religion, that Jesus, Jesus rejected, um, was not a religion like Luther described, but a, a religion of grace and just a religion of cultural boundaries, that the, the Jewish law was not something that they looked to to save them. It was just a cultural boundary, and they thought they were members of the covenant, circumcision, food laws, all the ceremonial laws are reflections of that covenant, markers of the, the boundaries of the covenant. We do this, and we're in the covenant. And that the salvation came from being in the covenant, being born into it. So I, I was interested because I knew that I had problems in my mind with what Luther had taught about the, about the, the, the law. And uh, by God's goodness, I had a, a long phone conversation with a friend one night as I was driving across the country. And he, he was a wise friend, not part of this church. And he said, David, you don't want to be thinking these things. You don't want to be going that direction. It's not good. You don't know enough. You don't know. And I backed off. But as I backed off in thinking of that and said, I don't know enough. This was right around the time Christ the Word was beginning or maybe two or three years before it. As I backed off, I saw a number of my friends, including Doug Wilson and many of his crowd, who were, uh, this is a, a group of Christians, conservatives out in Moscow, Idaho, and they, they were very good friends. And uh, I saw them go down that path in a thing called federal vision, that, that we're saved by being part of the church. It's not an individual salvation, really. It's a covenantal salvation through the church. And it became, it became, uh, many of the men left for Roman Catholicism. It became a, a direct tunnel into Roman Catholicism for, all, for many of those who, who embraced that type of thought. And I went, oh, whoa, this was evil. You know, this kind of thinking, and I'm so glad God preserved me from it. So I want to say, as we talk about where we are today, we have to recognize certain of the features of our church this church right now that Luther would have loved and that we are grateful to Luther because he brought about the culture which allowed them to come in these these characteristics to come into existence can any of you name some of the things that we would say thank God for Luther about and I'm not talking about the big things we can talk about the really big things okay that salvation is not of human merit that there is no merit except in Christ, that our good works do not save us. But can you think beyond that of things that Luther did that we just praise God for today? Because if we're going to say anything about where Luther may have gone off, we have to recognize how much he was gloriously on track about. Music. Music. 
Did you know that Luther loved playing the lute? He, he had a lute. Um, in fact, I, I'm not doing slides today, or I'd put up a slide of, of a mocking cartoon of Luther that was put out by his opponents. And in that cartoon, he's, he looks like this chubby, ugly guy playing a bagpipe, the devil's pipes, they called them, you know? And it's because Luther loved music. He liked to play. He had a lute that he'd play at home with his family. Talked about last week and said his, I, I realized I didn't give the, the further part of the story. He got married. They just, he decided he was going to marry Catherine, Katerina von Bora. And they got married and they said they weren't in love. But was that the end of the story? Well, no. It, it, the end of the story is they fell in love, which is very often what happens in marriage. How many of you would say you fell in love once you got married? I would, you know, I, I, you know, love grew in marriage. It, it, it wasn't love before marriage the way it was 10, 20, 30 years on in marriage. Have you found that out yet, Nick? No. You think you're in love. You're not. <laughs> um, and so Luther and Katerina, they had six children, two of whom died in infancy, um, four of whom were raised. I can't find anything that says what those kids in the, that family line did. I think it's kind of like many of the, the great lines, God conceals them. There's no children of Moses that we're aware of today, you know? We know he had children. We know Zipporah circumcised a son, right? It's called him bridegroom of blood, but we're not allowed by God so that we don't worship men. And I think that's true of Luther. He was married. He had a happy home life. His home was always full of people, open to anyone in need. It was, a, it was just a great marriage and a great life. And it, I, I would say to you, this is a, a happy thing for those of you young people who are struggling in the initial years of marriage. You know, marriage is not, is not a flowery bed of ease. It's a, it's a hard work and commitment. And, and the more work you put in and the more you're willing to be challenged, the happier you're going to be and the more love you're going to have. And that was Luther and Katerina. And she was a force. You know, she said, I'm either going to marry uh, his friend, Amstutz, and, or I'm going to marry Luther. And she ended up marrying Luther. And uh, she was a force in, in many ways. Okay, so... Music. Now, coming directly back to music, um, Luther insisted that the church not employ professional musicians to sing, but that the church itself should sing. All right? And if they were learning, and so he employed songwriters, Bach was one of his songwriters, kind of. If and the, the, if they were learning a new thing, if they're going to sing something new with the congregation on Sunday, he'd call a practice in the middle of the week. Okay, everyone come to church. We're going to practice what we're going to sing on Sunday to the worship of God. Isn't that amazing? And uh, he taught people and he insisted that the people sing, you know? And, and he sang. And you think of what a church would be like. I mean, many of you have gone to churches where no one sings but the people on the stage, Right? And, and the, the congregation just sits there quietly. This is something that Luther gave us. What else would we say that Luther gave us? Anyone? He gave us the Bible, okay? 
He did that in, in several different ways. <clears throat> One is that he, he said the Bible is our authority and not the church and not the Pope. That the Bible is the supreme authority of the Christian life. And that is the hallmark. If, if there is one hallmark of Protestantism, it is that the Bible is the word of God and our supreme authority in life and faith, right? And Luther is the founder. I mean, there's no one like Luther on this. And what a liberating thing it was. Now, Wycliffe had taught this, Huss had taught this, okay? But Luther was by God's grace enabled to enact it. So he gave us the Bible, but he also gave them the Bible in the German language. Remember, he translated the Bible. And that's as revolutionary a thing as his doctrinal commitment to the Bible as the supreme authority. Um, in, in, the, in the word of, in the day, the Bible was in Jerome's translation into the Vulgate, which is Latin, the vulgar tongue. Um, Vulgate means vulgar, which means not Latin, you know, or not, not, what does it mean? Come on, someone, help me. All you classical Christian school kids. Come on, vulgar. So much for your educations. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I'm talking to you guys. Uh, well, all right, so Luther said, we're going to turn it and put it in the language of the people, and I'm going to translate it loosely so that it has the force of, of the, the Hebrew and the Greek, and did a beautiful job. In fact, they say that German, the German language is entirely the product of Luther's Bible. Philologists, those who study language, will say that German language today is is Luther because of his translating the Bible. Just like the King James Version became the language of English speakers, Luther created the German language and in its broad scope in his translation of the Bible. Well, this was a principle with Luther. The principle is not that I'm gonna translate the Bible. The principle is what's called, and it's, a, it's this forgotten principle of the Reformation, but one that, and one that's being lost today, but the perspicuity of Scripture, which means that the Bible, my dad said to me, David, there is one principle of the Reformation that's maybe above all the rest, and it's the perspicuity of Scripture, that the Bible can be understood by the average person without the need for a priest. Now, we've lived this as a church. This is why we have men who are not Preachers preach. If you know the, the PCA, you know that's almost heresy in the PCA, but we did it for years because of this principle that the Bible is available to all. Now, I've made mistakes and asked men to preach who, who proved not to love the Lord, and I regret that, and it changed my views, but still this principle is worth, um, worth always claiming and saying. And so our small groups are a reflection of this which encourage people, our Bible studies, to read the Bible themselves. Um, and this, this is a fundamental principle. You understand that Luther was actually doing this in every area of life. He was taking the high church and making it low. He was taking the elevated singing and getting people who wrote popular songs and taking popular tunes and using that. He was taking the Bible from the 
Latin and putting it in the language of the people. This is something we must always do. My brother sent a quote from J.R.R. Tolkien to his son. Um, and uh, I wonder if I can find it and read it to you. Uh, this, this quote, Tolkien was a... Um, Tolkien, of course, was Roman Catholic, all right? And, uh, and he wrote his son I'm, uh, about where he was going to church. I can't find it. I'm not finding it. But I think it's worth, it's such a principle that Luther would have approved of that I'm going to try and find it for you. Okay. Um. He wrote his son. He said, also, I can recommend this as an exercise, parentheses, alas, only too easy to find opportunity for, then make your communion. In other words, go to a church, go to the mass, in circumstances that affront your taste. Choose a snuffling or gaveling priest or a proud and vulgar friar and a church full of the usual bourgeois crowd, not the elevated people, the normal middle-class people, ill-behaved children, from those who yell to those products of Catholic schools so the moment the tabernacle is open, sit back and yawn, open-necked and dirty youths, women in trousers, and often with hair both unkempt and uncovered, go to communion with them and pray for them. It will be just the same or better than that as a mass said beautifully by a visibly holy man and shared by a few devout and decorous people. It could not be worse than the mess of the feeding of the 5,000 after which our Lord propounded the feeding that was to come. In other words, don't go to a high fancy church that makes you feel good about yourself. Go to a church where you realize people are sinners and that God came for normal people, not for bright, wonderful, clean people. This is Luther. Luther would have approved of the band and of the young men and women writing music. This was Luther. He was immensely great. So I want to talk to you about where Luther, I think, made mistakes. And um, I would say, and I mentioned this last week, that it is... Um, my Monday morning quarterbacking opinion, which on this one, I, I find it hard to really fault him, but I think that in his lifetime, as, as things developed, he had been supported so strongly by, by Prince Frederick the Elector, Frederick the Wise, that though he fought Prince Frederick, and he called him the great hesitator, because Frederick never really wanted to take a bold stance. And though he mocked Frederick for collecting, um, what are they called, the artifacts, um, 
What? Relics, relics, for collecting relics, mocked him for that. You know, here's a piece of the cross. Here's this. He had a famous collection of relics. Um, though he mocked him, he had been supported by Frederick. And Frederick, at the end of his life, in the mid-1520s, um, did ask that Luther's, uh, Luther's liturgy be used at his funeral rather than the Roman Catholic liturgy. And so it, it does seem that, that Frederick was a convert from Roman Catholicism to the new form of religion that was, you know, probably what not called Lutheranism then. But as that, as the decades went on, Luther sort of hardened in his views. And at first he was very much against the princes and their mistreatment of the peasantry. Because the peasants were a little better than slaves, really, on the estates of the wealthy. Um, but as the peasants got a taste of the freedoms that Luther was talking about with, within the church and within the, the relationship to the, pre, the prevailing um, power of the day, which was the church, they also felt that it should change their lives politically, socially. And the leaders were not in favor of that. They didn't. So there's an uprising of the peasants in, in Germany in the 1520s, in the mid-1520s. And Luther it initially was sympathetic, but then he finally came down hard and told the rulers to slaughter them. There was a, a craziness that went on uh, in the 30s in a town called Munster in Germany where the radical, the Anabaptists, the radical Anabaptists took over and they were doing all sorts of evil stuff, you know, just evil sexually and so forth, the kind of thing that, you know, Jim Jones do, did. And, uh, and Luther at those points said, just slaughter them, kill them. Over his lifetime, Luther threw his lot in with the princes. And that was really a, a negative thing. They say that Lutheranism basically was stillborn because of his alliance with the princes. What, I, what do I mean by stillborn? Lutheranism as a reflection of Luther. The, the thing that we know as Lutheranism today. It, it, it took root in Scandinavia, in some in Eastern Europe, some in Central Europe. It didn't go with the force of Reformed thought. Um, that came out of Switzerland, Calvin, Bucer, um, Zwingli, who we'll talk about in some weeks to come. It didn't go because Luther was so allied with the princes. They helped him. They helped him start. And so I would say that, that this was a major mistake. And, and, but how do you know it at the time? How do you see what you're doing and the effects it's going to have years down the line? To a certain degree, there's a necessary dialectic between the, the Roman Catholic view and the Anabaptist view, which the Anabaptist said, we have nothing to do with society. The Roman Catholic view says we're over society. Somewhere in between the truth lies. We don't, you know, it's, it's hard to say. And if you go to one side or the other entirely, you're going to end up in evil. And Luther basically threw his lot with the Roman Catholics. Luther also, in his later years, um, was was in, at the Marburg Colloquy in 19, or 1529, the, the Prince Philip asked uh, his theologians who were kind of at war, all reformed, but there had become a split between the Swiss theologians, Calvin, Bucer, Zwingli, and, and Luther. And it really had to do with 
the elements of the, the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so Philip called them together and said, look, let's come to peace over this. Let's not be divided. We've left Rome. Let's not divide again. Um, but Luther came to that thing and he says, I am not budging an inch. It's the real body. It's the real blood of Jesus. And, and Lutheranism has always had a strong strain. Any of you grow up Lutheran? Uh, Lutheranism has always had a strong strain of sacramentalism. You're saved if you're baptized. You take the, math, you take the Lord's Supper, and it's very, very close to Roman Catholicism in these ways. And Luther, I think, walked up to the abyss, and he stepped over it with the Bible and other things, but he came up to the abyss on this, and he said, I can't go there. And uh, it was to the real harm of Lutheranism. But there's a, a more important thing that, that Luther, I don't think, these, what I've spoken about in errors are errors of not having knowledge of where you're going or of, there is an error though that Luther, I believe, made that, um, that has led us to a church which is, well, it's, we're 100 years after um, the writing of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many of you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the eminent German theologian who stood against Hitler, who was just one of the great men of the 20th century and killed, put to death by Hitler? Um, Bonhoeffer wrote an absolutely great work called uh, The Cost of Discipleship, which as a German and therefore Lutheran theologian, he doesn't say is against Luther or where Luther went, but I don't think anyone can read what Bonhoeffer wrote and not say, well, he's, he's really sounding very different than Martin Luther, even though he is claiming Martin Luther. Um, Bonhoeffer wrote, and uh, I thank uh, Randy Myers for this quote. He sent it to me a couple weeks ago. He observed the Nazi movement, the Weimar Republic with its kind of sexual insanity that was a sort of like today but in lesser form. The Weimar Republic between the First World War and Second World War, 1920s in Germany was insane. And so, and then Hitler coming in, and it's always a risk when things get as crazy as they are in the United States today, you, you open yourself up for a Hitler who will come in and say, okay, you know, no one else is going to step up to the plate. I'll step up to the plate. So he wrote, we Lutherans have gathered like eagles around the carcass of cheap grace, and there we have drunk of the poison which has killed the life of following Christ. It is true, of course, that we have paid the doctrine of pure grace, divine honors, unparalleled in Christendom. In other words, as Luther's heirs, we have loved grace. In fact, we have exalted that doctrine to the position of God himself. Everywhere, Luther's formula has been repeated, but its truth perverted into self-deception. So long as our church holds the correct doctrine of justification, there's no doubt that whatever that she is, is a justified church. So they said, thinking that we must vindicate our Lutheran heritage by making this grace available on the cheapest and easiest terms. It says that Lutheranism has always said grace is available on the cheapest and easiest terms. To be Lutheran must mean that we leave the following of Christ to legalists, Calvinists, and enthusiasts. And all this for the sake of grace. We justified the world 
and condemned as heretics, those who tried to follow Christ. The result was that a nation became Christian and Lutheran, but at the cost of true discipleship. The price it was called upon to pay was all too cheap. Cheap grace had won the day. But do we also realize that this cheap grace has turned back upon us like a boomerang? The price we are having to pay today in the shape of the collapse of the organized church, he's talking in 1920s, 1930s in Germany, but we'd say the same today, wouldn't we? There's no church left. There's no body that stands. Even 40 years ago there was, but there's nothing. The price we are having to pay in the collapse of the organized church is only the inevitable consequence of our policy of making grace available to all at too low a cost. We gave away the word and sacraments wholesale. We baptized, confirmed, and absolved a whole nation unasked and without condition. Our humanitarian sentiment made us give that which was holy to the scornful and the unbelieving. We poured forth unending streams of grace, but the call to follow Jesus in the narrow way was hardly ever heard. Where were those truths which impelled the early church to institute the catechumenate? In other words, in the early church, if you're coming in, you went through a long course of training and discipline. And it was called the catechu- doing the catechism, catechumenate, which enabled a strict watch to be kept over the frontier between the church and the world and afforded adequate protection for costly grace. What had happened to all those warnings of Luther's against preaching the gospel in such a manner as to make men rest secure in their ungodly living? And Luther did preach that way. Was there ever a more terrible or disastrous instance of the Christianizing of the world than this? What are those 3,000 Saxons put to death by Charlemagne compared with the millions of spiritual corpses in our country today? With us, it has been abundantly proved that the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children under the third and fourth generations. Cheap grace has turned out to be utterly merciless to our evangelical church. Cheap grace is the danger. Bonhoeffer doesn't go into this. I think it would be good. We, we understand why Luther preached grace. We understand why he said it's, it's not you, it's God. We understand that this was freeing for him and for you and me to be told that it's not our working hard the, the day he lived in was a day without any assurance of faith, of, of salvation. It was only as you, and that's why so many people went to the life of a convent, monastery, where they were the religious who, who dedicated themselves to God, making great sacrifices, and so that they would be worthy of heaven and be entered into heaven immediately rather than going through the, the suffering, the, the burning of purgatory. There was no assurance, and it was a time of the Black Plague. The Black Plague ran through Europe during these, this era, and Luther had people in his home so that they, they put his home at the end of the plague under a, a, they did it with us recently, what's it called? Quarantine, under a quarantine, thank you. Under quarantine, because his home was used to, to treat people. I and mean, this is, what a great man. And so Luther, in saying that it's the righteousness of God that saves us, not our righteousness, the righteousness of God found in Christ, 
opened a door that had been shut almost, a door that Augustine and many others had, had clearly had open and the church had welcomed, but by the time of Luther, it had been lost. And so we, we love him, but as Luther goes on, he, I think, makes a distinction that is, that is, to my mind, impossible to make. And that he, he drew a distinction at the wrong spot. And what Luther did is said that all the Bible is either the whole of Scripture, ooh, is either, well, let me read his words himself. This is a sermon he preached, the famous sermon, How Christians Should Regard Moses, all right? Basically, in saying how Christians should regard Moses, he's talking about the law of Moses. How should Christians regard Moses? And he says, um, there are two doctrines in the Bible, two things. The first is the law of God. Now, the first sermon and doctrine of Scripture is the law of God. The second is the gospel, grace. These two sermons aren't the same. Therefore, we must have a good grasp of the matter in order to know how to differentiate between them. We must know what the law is and what the gospel is. The law commands and requires us to do certain things. The law is thus directed solely to our behavior and consists in making requirements. For God speaks through the law saying, do this, avoid this, this is what I expect of you. The gospel, however, does not preach what we are to do or to avoid. It sets up no requirements, but but reverses the approach of the law, does the very opposite and says, this is what God has done for you. He has let his son be made flesh for you. He has let him be put to death for your sake. So then there are two kinds of doctrine and two kinds of work, those of God and those of men. Just as we and God are separated from one another, so also these two doctrines are widely separated from one another. For the gospel teaches exclusively what has been given to us by God and not, as in the case of the law, what we are to do and give to God. And so he sets up this, this dichotomy, law or gospel, and says they're opposite, they're opposed, they are absolutely incompatible with each other. The one says, I must do, the other says, God has done. Um, and there are passages in the Bible that you will read, Galatians, Romans, that you'll say, well, he's hitting the truth. But then you read the Bible and you see Jesus came and he preached the gospel, right? Did anyone preach the gospel more freely than Jesus? But Jesus, in his initial preaching, says things like, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he says, in fact, Moses said to you, but I say to you, and in each of those instances in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he do? He amplifies what Moses required. He says, Moses said, but I tell you, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery. Moses said, you can, but I tell you, you're not to commit a divorce. You know? Moses said, but I tell you, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. All right? And, and as the sermon ends, Jesus says, it's a summary, you know, it's the final point of his Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, 
everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, maybe compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended and the rivers came and the winds blew and fell against that rock, yet it did not fall. And everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them, maybe compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Many will say to me in that Lord day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. Then I will, practice, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who, what? You who practice lawlessness. Jesus says to be lawless is to be outside the kingdom of God. But Luther draws this divide, and you can understand why he does, because the Catholic Church has said, you gain merit by obeying the law. Your merit that justifies you in the presence of God is your obedience. The original sin is wiped out by baptism. Then you remain in by obeying God and by doing confession and going to the Mass when you commit serious sins. And whatever sins are left that are venial are paid for in purgatory. So it's entirely what we do beyond the initial infusion of grace that's given to us. And so Luther hates that view, but he, at, at, at a very crucial point, takes a stance that says all the law is bad. He loves the writings of, of Paul, and I think this could be said of our church today. And this is why I, I've, I wish I'd had time as a pastor to preach on John, but I, I did Luke twice and Mark and Matthew, and I know you thought I was going to spend the rest of your lives on Matthew. But it's, it's, it is, to my mind, it, an abiding mystery why the theology of the denomination that we are a part of and the world that I grew up in and you grew up is thoroughly committed to Paul, but really looks at Jesus as though he was a simple man who taught profound truths, but that we don't really go to him for our theology. Am I making sense? We don't. And if Jesus is an authoritative and reliable guide to theology, then the law and obedience to it is important. Do you understand what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? What he, what he said versus what we would say he said. He said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. But what have we said? What is the evangelical world's position that Jesus really means when he says this? Isn't it that, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and believes them? Right? So that it's my mental state which is always immaculate. I mean, aren't you immaculate mentally? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I'm not really this guy. One of the craziest things you ever see is someone having just done evil stuff or said evil stuff, and they say, I'm not that type of person. You know, because they have a, an exalted view of themselves, right? How many of you have a, a debased view of yourself? Uh, a few of you, and if you do, you may not like it, but thank God that he's given you that because that's the way you get to heaven is to see that you're nothing, all right? But the, the evangelical world has said, it's not what you do. Jesus said, 
If you hear my words and do them, everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them. So I'm next week, I'm going to come to um, a suggested, what I would suggest, and it's been years of my thinking about it, a suggested solution that, that might help us love Luther and understand Luther, but reclaim our thinking from this real mess that he brought us into. I, I could go on, and I have a minute now, so let me just say, Luther hates Moses. Now, he, he says that the moral law is written on the hearts, and he's really not talking about it, but he does. He just, he says things that are, they're awful. He says, there are two kingdoms in the Bible, um, the temporal, the world, the spiritual, the church. He says, but there's a kind of middle kingdom in between them, which is the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. And in the Jewish people, he says, here in the middle kingdom, the law of Moses has its place. It is no longer binding on us because it was given only to the people of Israel. And Israel accepted this law for itself and its descendants while the Gentiles were excluded. To be sure, the Gentiles have certain laws in common with the Jews such as these. There's one God, no one is to do wrong to another, no one is to commit adultery or murder or steal and others like them. This is written by nature into their hearts. They did not hear it straight from heaven as the Jews did. This is why this entire text does not pertain to the Gentiles, the whole Old Testament. I say this on account of the enthusiasm. He goes on and he says that the Old Testament only applies to the Jews. He says that it's, it doesn't apply to the Christian. It's rules. He, he says that there are three uses of the law. The first is, as we all agree, that it drives people to Jesus because it condemns them. He's, then there's the restraint of evil in the world. That's the second use, the restraint of evil. Civil use of the law. Pedagogical is teaching us that we are sinners. Civil is to restrain evil in the world. Then there's the personal use. That, uh, and he's very light on this personal use as a guide to holiness and pleasing God in a way that Calvin and the Swiss reformers were not. They said, well, you must do it. You must do it if you're, if you're redeemed. If you're justified, you must obey the law. All right, Luther would not say that. He just couldn't say that. And so he, he can't admit that the law is not simply a negative force. Thou shalt not. Even the things that he said that are written on the heart, he puts negatively. You shall not do this. Jesus, when he speaks about the law, describes it positively, doesn't he? Right? What am I thinking of when Jesus describes the law and, and speaks of it positively? I'm thinking of when he's asked, what are the chief commandments? And he says, you know, the whole law can be summed up in this. Love your neighbor, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. God is love. God is law. The Ten Commandments are not a negative force. So Luther in the bondage of the will at one point writes something that I just am scandalized by, and I think he should have been too. He writes... You could say by way of parallel that the gospel has left us in the hand of our own counsel to use and have dominion over things as we will. Whereas, okay, the gospel sets us free, whereas Moses and the Pope did not leave us to that counsel but constrained us by laws and subjected us rather to their will. 
Moses subjected the Jews to his will, put them in bondage. That's what he says. And I think we, at this point, Luther is culpable. This is not like other mistakes he made. He is wrong. Luther did not want James in the Bible. He put it at the end, along with Hebrews, along with Jude and Revelation. Anything that demanded things. You can understand why he called James an epistle of straw. Because it says we are not justified by faith alone. And he says that's not the Bible. And so I, I want to come back next week and, and give some suggestions on how we change our thinking and recognizing the glory of Luther setting us free in certain ways, but how we must think about the law and where we need to change in this Reformation that we're a part of to get back to, the, to Augustinian, Pauline, and even Lutheran Christianity, because Luther did obey the law, even though he preached this, all right? So thank you. Roger, would you close us with prayer? Thank you.